found out that the great proof of our faith that can be seen by others is our faithfulness, our stewardship of all that God has given to us. We're going to move on to part two this morning. But before I actually get into it, I want to share with you a story that comes from World War II era. This comes from Tony Campolo's book. It was written back in 1986, I believe. It was called, uh, from, uh, I think the name of the book was Who Switched the Price Tags or something like that. But uh, this is uh, an incredible story. <clears throat> A young Jewish boy in Poland was rounded up by Nazi troops along with his family and neighbors. They were forced to dig a common grave. And then the soldiers gathered around them and shot them. Miraculously, this one youngster was not hit by a bullet. He collapsed into the mass of those that had been killed, laid quietly while earth was piled on top of them, but the shallow grave somehow afforded him enough air to survive, and he laid there the rest of the day and into the night. During the night, he clawed himself out and ran into the darkness. It was cold, miserable. He was dirty and naked and covered with blood. wasn't exactly presentable, but he knocked on the door of multiple homes, seeking help. But each and every time he was turned away because those homeowners feared the Germans. In desperation and in a final attempt to find some assistance, he timidly knocked on one last door. When an elderly lady opened the door, he said, don't. You recognize me? Don't you recognize me? I am the Jesus you say you love. That woman, that compassionate woman, embraced the little boy, took him in, and raised him as her own. It is a shame when people in general are insensitive to the needs of others, even if it is costly to them. But it's a crying shame if any of God's people are so insensitive as to turn their back on those in need, that's for sure. It brings me to one verse out of our passage this morning, chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 40, where Jesus Here, the king says to those that have rendered assistance to his brethren, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. What a great illustration of that principle. It is our love that marks us as Christians. Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. 
Jesus uttered these words on the night before his crucifixion to his disciples. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you may also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You see, our love for God, our love for the Lord Jesus, is expressed in our love for each other and expressed in our love for humanity in general. I like what it says in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 10. Where Paul wrote, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to love everyone, even our enemies, Jesus said, even they should we love. But especially, we should have a love for others who know the Lord and are connected to the Lord. For we are one in the body of Christ, and so made to be one by the Holy Spirit of God. Of all the evidence, of all the evidence we could possibly produce that would demonstrate that we are truly Christians, God's people. Our responsiveness to the needs of others would be the greatest evidence we could put forth. This was true when the early church was around. It's true today and it will be true in the last days. And our text this morning contextually is about those last days. Last week, as we noted the context of the parable of the talents was the judgment of those people that survived the tribulation period and whether or not they will, they will be allowed to enter into the thousand-year kingdom of Christ that will follow. That particular parable, prophetically, although it has a broader application, the principle is true even today, that parable illustrated God's judgment of Jewish people that survived the tribulation period. And whether or not they had faith in Christ will determine whether they will enter into the kingdom. Now we come to chapter 25 of Matthew in verse 31. And we have not a parable here, but a description of the future, a prophecy. Lord Jesus Christ, which moves on to the other group of people in this world, the Gentiles. You see, in God's eyes, there's only two. There's the Jewish people and the Gentiles. We'll talk more about why that is the case in a few moments. And again, it is when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation period and is victorious over the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon that he then will usher in his kingdom. And he will only allow those who have personal faith in him to enter into that kingdom be they Gentiles or Jews. But we come to this prophecy now, chapter 25, verse 31. And here we find the point of the whole thing is that love, our love, our compassion for other people, is the hallmark of faith, the proof that we're really, truly born again, that we are God's people. Now notice the context of what he says. Prophetically, he says, when... 
the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as, to, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on the right hand but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to these on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now that sets the stage for the first point we want to make. We want to show you two reasons why that love in any age is the hallmark of faith. And by hallmark, I mean the assurance that we have faith, the guarantee of our faith, uh, the token of our faith, the, the evidence of our faith comes out in our love for other people. Reason number one that love, that love is the hallmark of faith is this. The presence of love demonstrates faith in Christ. The presence of love demonstrates our faith in Christ. Now let's see it here in the prophecy. Verse 34. Remember, he has called all the nations, it says, in verse 32 together. By the way, the, the Greek word translation, translated nations just means peoples of the world. It's not, it's not nations as a, you know, political entity or as a geographical, you know, boundary that is going to be judged. It is the individuals in every nation that will stand before him in that day. And so he's literally talking about all the Gentile nations. He's already covered the Jewish nations in the previous parable. Now, and all these peoples, all these nations will come before him, and he will separate some on the right, some on the left. And the ones on the right are called sheep, and the ones on the left are called goats. And this is no, uh, no, ref <clears throat> no reflection on sheep and goats. It's just... He's using a, a common thing that was done in that day by shepherds who would herd together sheep and goats, but at night or at times when they were feeding, they would separate the two because they didn't get along real well at night together or when they were feeding. So a shepherd obviously did that. He's using the, the imagery here of God, our shepherd, our good shepherd, the great shepherd, who now at this juncture brings about judgment on those that physically survive the tribulation. And the sheep are said to be uh, those who are on the right hand, and ultimately we're going to see they will be the ones that will inherit the kingdom. The goats do not. So there's a, a distinction made, a judgment made. Verse 33, he will set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, the sheep, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now there are many today, many Christians today, who deny the reality of a literal kingdom that will come. But I call your attention to the very first word in this prophecy, verse 34, when the Son of Man comes in His glory with all of His angels. That's when the kingdom will be. He hasn't come yet. But some will say, well, the kingdom is the church. No, the kingdom isn't the church. He hasn't come. You cannot, con you cannot confuse the church with Israel. You cannot confuse 
the church age with the day and age of the kingdom. This is to come. It is when the Son of Man comes. And we know that to be at the end of the tribulation period. That's when there will be a kingdom. Some people say, well, the church will just, you know, be able to somehow convert the whole world and then bring in the kingdom. And only after the kingdom is brought in, then will Jesus come. No, that's not what it says. It says when he comes, some will inherit the kingdom. It's pretty plain. Although some uh, searching for some academic prestige like to make something out. By the way, this idea I'm giving you, this, this reality prophetically, it was held by the church of Jesus Christ for three or four hundred years before anything else was even proposed. You go all the way back to the early church fathers, all the way back to the apostles, all the way back to Jesus Christ. It was very well understood that a literal kingdom was on the horizon. Now, those who withstand the judgment and inherit the kingdom, by the way, that word inherit, you know, you only inherit from someone you're related to. So salvation is not because of the good works in their life that we're about to look at. Their, their relationship to God through faith is what saved them. It is those good things they did to simply reflect that. And that's what we move to next. Verse 35. After saying, inherit the kingdom, he says, for, here's the reason why you're going to, here's the reason or the proof behind the fact that you are someone who is inheriting the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, that's the sheep, the righteous ones. They're not righteous because of these good works. They're righteous because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They've been justified, declared righteous by God. Righteousness, though, that change, that, that, that change of, uh, that is made by the Spirit of God, making us into a new creature and giving us life, eternal life, changes us, and the good works and the love follows. Then the righteous, verse 37, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger? That, by the way, that could be translated a refugee. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Take a look at that again. As surely as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Just think about that word least for a minute. It means the absolute lowest rank, the absolute lowest importance, the absolute most insignificant of person. Now, who will be that group? the least of these during the tribulation, the Jewish people. And even Gentiles who trust in Christ, they'll both be persecuted. Persecuted mercilessly by the Antichrist. Many will become martyrs. Some will survive. 
Now the martyred will be resurrected. They'll be part of the kingdom too. Those who survive will be in this judgment here. It's interesting that in this world today and, and many, many times in church history, it is those people that drew closest to God were considered to be the most insignificant, the most useless, the most despised, the most hated of all. And we have had a great respite from that here in this country for 200 plus years, but it is quickly changing. It is those who cannot help themselves, those who are in great need, those that need compassion that matters and not their status. And not whether they are the ones that everybody thinks are important for whatever reason. The least of these, my brethren, he says, my brethren. Again, remember, this judgment of the nations, the judgment of the peoples of the world that are Gentile, they're going to be, they're going to demonstrate their faith in Jesus Christ by how they treated the Jewish people during the tribulation people. These are the brethren of Jesus. By the way, I think it's probably broad enough to include, uh, those others after the rapture. You know, there'll be no, no Gentile believers or Jewish believers. Immediately after the rapture, they'll be taken up. But after that, many will come to faith, both Jewish and Gentile. And those who minister to those that are so persecuted by the Antichrist in those days will demonstrate their faith and give proof that they are on the right hand. That they are sheep and not goats. Just recently... The nation of Israel had to defend itself against Hamas. Yes, I say defend itself because Hamas fired the first rocket. Something that any nation would do, defend themselves. But there is a vast majority of people in this world that condemned Israel for that rather than the attackers. There is a hatred of Jewish people in this world today. There was a hatred of Jewish people in Hitler's day. There was a hatred of Jewish people in Queen Esther's day in Persia and and many, many other times in history. Now listen, all hatred of anybody for any reason is satanically inspired. And included in that is the fact that the hatred of Israel is definitely satanically inspired. Now let's go back to the book of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, there was no Jewish nation in Genesis 12. There was one man from the Ur of the Chaldees, a man by the name of Abram, who believed in God. And God put his finger on one man who had faith. He said, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And by faith, Abraham obeyed. Verse 2. And this is what he said to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. 
And in you shall all the families of the earth, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now listen, we many times refer to Israel as God's chosen nation. That does not mean the Jewish people are better than Gentiles. It does not mean that God loves Jewish people more than he does Gentiles. It simply means that God blessed the whole world through one man, and that man and his posterity became the nation of Israel. And that Israel is the funnel, if you will, the conduit, if you will, by which or through which God sought to bless everybody. God is not about just blessing the Jews and forgetting about everybody else. He wants to bless us all. And he did that through one man who had faith, Abram, and the people who came from him. And he said, these people that will be your descendants, Abram, I I want you to understand, in this world, those who bless them, I will bless, and those that curse them, I will curse. Isn't that exactly what we saw? They came to Nazi Germany. They cursed the Jews for a while. It didn't turn out real well for them, did it? God will see to it that that takes place in every instance. Now, if you were to make a list this morning, and I suppose we can all do this in our mind, let's make a list of the things that we think are most advantageous to the security, the prosperity, and good fortune of the United States of America, and we're all for that, on this great Independence Day. But if we were to make a list in our mind of the things that are most important for the security and the prosperity, and everything that is what we desire our nation to be, to be the case, what what would be the most important things that need to be in place for that to be a reality. And support for Israel, I guarantee you, would be way, way, way down on the list. And I suggest to you, God says it ought to be on the top of the list. It is through Israel that God brought forth the Savior that died for all of us, the whole world. Every Gentile that's ever lived, as well as every Jew. Israel was the, the conduit through which God blessed us all with the opportunity for salvation. And God won't stand idly by and not defend all that he has established. There's promises made to Abraham that will not come true until that kingdom we're talking about this morning comes to be. That it will be fulfilled. The promises will be made. It's unconditional. Made to Abraham to many, many hundreds of years ago. I know that there are many that disagree with me. Even a lot of Christians worldwide would disagree with me because they don't understand the significance of Genesis 12 and the unconditional promises of God. And so they do not stand with Israel. Now look, Israel's not a perfect nation. It's not, a, it's not even a Christian nation. It's not even a religious nation. It's more or less a secular nation. And God is not going to bless any unbelieving Jew any more than he'll bless any unbelieving 
Gentile in the, in the judgment without faith in Jesus Christ. But there will be those that are Jews that have faith in Christ that will enter into this kingdom that he's talking about here this morning. Now, when Jesus said, you know, I was hungry, you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me drink and all that. Those in that day will say, well, when did we do that? You'll say, wouldn't you did it to the least of these, my brethren? When you reached out to those in misery who were suffering because of their faith in me during the tribulation period. And they will be of the most needy group, the most persecuted group, probably in all of history during those seven years. He's talking about physical needs. Hunger, thirst, shelter. Just someone to come and encourage you and stand by you if you're in prison. Take you in if you're a refugee. All these things are just, just normal, everyday things you would do to be compassionate to people who have needs. You see, we, we tend to think our life is about, well, how many great things do we do? No, no, no. It's about how many little things do we do every day that God's looking at. And it's those things, how we treat our brothers in Christ. You know, there's nothing that pains my heart anymore. Over the years, 40 plus years in the pastoral ministry, nothing that pains my heart anymore than to see God's people in the church at odds with one another. I don't speak to so-and-so. I don't like so-and-so. And I don't, you know, I, I stay over here and I stay away from so-and-so. And I don't agree with so-and-so. You know, you don't have to like anybody else. But you need to love everybody else. Now that's a, there's a difference. I don't always like everybody the same based on their personality or how they treat me, but I have an obligation to love them. And we all do. That doesn't mean we compromise what's right. But we do have an obligation to love. And meeting physical needs and at our own expense... You realize that the people he's talking about here in the tribulation period, we're living in a time when the world is going to be judged in such a dramatic way that people are, every, nobody's going to have enough of anything. Food, shelter, water, it's all going to be affected. And yet some will find reason to give, to help others. So the essence of love is giving. And when we give, we do so at our own cost. It's not giving if it doesn't cost us something. But more importantly in that day, and even today for that matter, more importantly when we give to people that everybody else thinks is the the dregs of society, the least of these, when we give to them, we may do so at our own risk. And certainly that will be the case during the tribulation period. Now, broadening the principle, even though this is a prophetic section, we know from reading 1 John 4, you got to go read 1 John 4, talks about loving the brethren, meeting their needs. Look at, if you want to read Luke 10, go read the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan again in Luke 10. There was a Gentile who ministered to Jewish people there. 
But the priest and the Levi didn't. They passed right on by the guy, remember? You can go read Matthew 6. Go read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find the same principle. Go read Romans chapter 12 at the latter part of the, ver- of the chapter, and it talks about loving your enemies. Love the brethren, love your neighbor, love your enemies. It runs through the whole of the New Testament. It, it encompasses a responsibility that is broad for all of us. And there is nothing perhaps, I'm, I'm sure there's just nothing else that speaks of our connection to Jesus Christ and our salvation and, in, and gives our testimony impact like just love and compassion. And so the presence of love demonstrates faith in Christ. And then number two, the absence of love indicates the rejection of Christ. Well, pretty much what I already said in point one, we're just turning it around. But let's look again. At our text, beginning now at verse 41. Then we'll say those on the left hand, those characterized as goats, just because the shepherd just divided them that way. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, a refugee, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now again, people will not be judged and sent to hell because of their works. Now, their works may determine the extent of what they suffer in hell. I understand that. But ultimately, everybody that that, that is judged... It's judged because they reject Jesus Christ, period. And not, not doing these things simply reflects that. Then they, verse 44, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these You did not do it to me. Other believers, any believer, Jew or Gentile, is one with Christ through the Spirit of God. We are part of the universal body of Christ. The way we effectively love our God is love the brethren. The way we demonstrate love of God is even loving our enemies and our neighbors. It's the greatest evidence of our salvation. A lack of love then indicates the personal rejection of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. By grace, I mean the the gift of salvation that he offers us. And the absence of faith, which is the same as the rejection of Christ, results in judgment. Look at verse 41 again. Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. Well, how, how long is everlasting fire? How long does everlasting fire last? Well, it never ends. Let's go down to 
verse 40. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Well, how long does everlasting punishment last? Forever. Yet there are some who say, well, no, God's not, God's not going to send anyone to hell to suffer eternally. I remember a friend of mine many, many years ago that I, in discussions with him, he, he was a professed believer at least, I, I assume he was. He said, I don't believe that God sends anybody to hell to suffer for a period of time. I think that you, when, when they go to the lake of fire, they just burn up and they end, they're annihilated, they cease to exist. Well, you couldn't argue with him, it didn't matter what the, what the scripture said, because that was an emotional belief. He did not want that to be the case, because people he knew and cared about were rejecting Christ. He didn't want to imagine them suffering eternally. There's even whole denominations that believe in what's called annihilation versus eternal punishment. Now let me show you something. You see the word everlasting in verse 41. You come down to verse 46, you see the word everlasting. It's everlasting fire in verse 41. It's everlasting punishment in verse 46. And then look at the rest of verse 46. Let's read it together. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now it's unfortunate that the King James translation changes the word from everlasting to eternal in verse 41 because it's exactly the same Greek word translated everlasting earlier in the verse and the same Greek word translated everlasting back in verse 41. So... If there's no such thing as eternal destruction, the same word is, re- is referred to, used to describe eternal life. So if there's no everlasting punishment, then how can there be everlasting life? And by the way, the exact same Greek word I just referred to that occurs three times here in Matthew 25 is the same word found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I don't begin to understand everything God has done, He says. And I certainly am not qualified to question anything, he says, and I will not. It is our duty as stewards of God's word and truth to preach what it says, not what we want it to say. The best thing I can advise for anybody that has not put their faith in Jesus Christ is to accept what he's done for you. You don't have to be a good person to accept Jesus Christ. (laughs) Why is that? Because none of us are any good. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Nobody's good. In God's eyes, we all fall short of what we ought to be. We're all sinners. We're all under the condemnation of eternal life. All you got to do is accept the gift that He gives you. He died in your place and He took your punishment, if you will accept it. It's the same as if someone gives you a birthday gift and you look at it and say, no, I don't want it, and hand it back to Him. It's yours. It's free. All you got to do is take it. If you give it back, if you reject it, you don't get the benefit. God's given us eternal life if we'll accept it. And if we accept it, it'll make us a new creature and we'll become loving and we'll become Christ-like. Without it, we become something else. And the end is not pretty. 
I want to give you another little story because I think it makes the application here something that we can all get a handle on. This comes from one of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books published back in the 1990s. The story is this. While walking home from school one day, a young man named Mark noticed a boy ahead of him who had stumbled to the ground and dropped everything he was carrying. Mark hurried to the boy's side and helped him collect his belongings. Surprisingly, the boy was carrying an especially heavy load. Baseball glove, bat, couple of sweaters, small tape recorder, a whole armload of books. Mark helped him carry these things home. And his new friend, Bill, was most appreciative of the compassion that Mark had shown during the walk home. He invited Mark in. They had a Coke. They spent the rest of the afternoon talking, laughing, watching TV. They never were really, really close friends after that, but they were always friends. They kind of kept tabs on one another. Several weeks before graduation, Bill went up to Mark and said, you remember the day that we met? Mark nodded and Bill went on to say, did you ever wonder why I was carrying so many things that day? Without pausing, Bill went on to explain. He said that he was going home that day from school. He took everything he had at school because he was going home to take his own life. And uh, it was Mark's compassion that changed his mind. In fact, he said to Mark, he said, Mark, when you picked up my books that day, you saved my life. Now, we don't always have such a noticeable and immediate impact when we are kind to others. And in this case, we don't even know if that young man would have even done that. He, he just was extremely down, and, and Mark made a difference in his life. Just a little gesture, just a little thing. There's a lot of people, I suppose, that we encounter and we do some little act of kindness, show them a little compassion and never makes any difference. And other times, though, we can have a, a huge impact, a huge impression that may turn someone to Christ. Or it may just encourage another believer or help somebody when they need it. Just little things, just everyday kindnesses. A little water when someone's thirsty. Something to eat when they're hungry. A roof over their head for a night. I'm taking the time to visit somebody who's in prison. Maybe because they deserve to be. But that doesn't matter, does it? What we do, we do in the name of Christ. What we do, we do as if we are doing it to Christ, for Christ. But He is the reason. And that's the way we ought to live our lives every day. That should be our goal. That should be our guide. It should be our purpose. 
should be what characterizes.